people. What's the difference between moral sin and ritual uncleanness? Now, uncleanness refers to non-moral mistakes. So, uncleanness refers to non-moral mistakes. We're talking about the ritual uncleanness in the Old Testament. So, Leviticus chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 talks about ritual uncleanness. Now, there's something to it. Now, what is ritual uncleanness exactly? Ritual uncleanness has something to do about with what you eat. Non-kosher food. So, if you eat lechon or isau, you know, yummy things, <laughs> or uh, grilled squid, or, you know, shrimps. These are forbidden in the Bible. These will make you unclean. So we're talking about sin offering or purification offering that makes you unclean, ritually, not morally. We're not talking about murdering someone or committing adultery or raping a child. We're not talking about that. This sort of offering has only something to do with ritual uncleanness. Now, let me touch that for a little bit. It has nothing to do with breaking the Sabbath. If you think about the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, it has nothing to do with breaking the Sabbath or adultery or worshiping idols or getting involved in magic or Halloween. Why is it, why is it prob- a problem? See, participating in Halloween is, a, is in some form a divination. Divination in the Old Testament is forbidden. The Bible says it's like rebellion against God, divination. Now, divination can come in many shapes and forms, but Halloween has something to do with divination. What is divination exactly? Divination is getting in touch with the spirit world. And by spirit world, we don't mean the angels, the good guys. We mean the evil spirit world, divination. Christians are not encouraged to talk to angels. We are not asked anywhere in the Bible to pray to angels. We're not even asked to pray to dead saints or any dead people. We're not allowed to do that because by doing so, you are doing divination. The Bible prohibits that. Halloween is some, some form of divination. Halloween is a soft version of divination because it's indirectly connecting with the spirit world. And if you think about it, it may be harmless that your kids, you know, do the, the goblin costumes and the witch's court costume and goes around having candies and chocolates. But this is Halloween. This is soft divination. And if you go to the internet, you might find that there are ex-witches who have testified that during the Halloween is where all the covens, all the groups of witches are most powerful because they harness the power of the spirit world. What this means is that do not even mess with Halloween. Now, more about that next week. Let's go to the sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4, let's start with verse 27. Let me read for you. If you have Bibles, iPads, iPhones, or Bibles, uh, you can follow me along as I read. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally, and that will be the key word here, in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, female without blemish, for his sin, 
which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove. As the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to God. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Now, I, I know it's a mouthful, so let, let me unpack this for you. If there's one thing that stood out, it's probably the last phrase that says, He shall be forgiven. Now, this is a good thing. Because if it's sin offering or purification offering, if you offer it, you will be forgiven. But the key word here is unintentional. If you do things, the ritual sins, unintentional, that means un, not premeditated, that means unplanned, you did it by mistake, you will be forgiven. So say, for example, we're talking about ritual uncleanness. Say, for example, a woman comes with her monthly period. In the Old Testament, you become unclean when you have your monthly period. Or, you, you know, having go through this monthly period, you forgot that you have this period, and you went near the tabernacle. That's an offense to God. You will have to sacrifice an animal, an unblemished animal. Again, we're not talking about, about murder or, or committing adultery or raping a child or any of that stuff. Those are moral sins. We're talking about ritual uncleanness. Say, for example, you ate pork and you forgot and you went near the temple. That's an offense to God. Say, for example, you ate crickets. You know, in the Philippines, we have a lot of delicacies. You know, the tamilok and the oysters. Oysters are forbidden, by the way. And you ate yummy shrimps. It's forbidden also. And you forgot. And you went to the tabernacle. You're making an offense against God. You have to offer sin offering. We're talking about ritual purity and how to keep the sacred space clean. If you come near God, you must be clean. That's the whole point of this one. We're talking about ritual cleanliness. The exact opposite of that is moral impurity or moral sin. Let, let me give you some examples. Moral sin has something to do with the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments. Breaking the Sabbath, adultery, bearing false witness, not honoring your parents. Basically, all the Ten Commandments are listed there. Sins like these in the Old Testament are immediately punished, not forgiven. Punished. You know the punishment for adultery? is stoning to death. And the punishment for dishonoring your parents is stoning to death. And the punishment for murder is stoning to death. There's no forgiveness for this kinds of sin. So we're talking about the ritual impurity. What this tells us is that the consequence for moral sin is tough and decisive. And this should tell us that God treats sin seriously. Let me say that one more time. God treats sin seriously. And if that is so, we have to treat sin also seriously. But there's another matter in chapter 6, verse 24. This is like an addendum to the sin offering. Leviticus 6, 24 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. Now watch this, this last verse. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. 
In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of the meeting. What does it mean? What is it saying? What it's saying is that when a sinner comes to the Lord, gives a sin offering, the animal is given back to the priest for them to eat. Why do they have to eat? The priests are required to eat because they are intermediaries. They are mediators. And in doing so, by ingesting the animal, they are sharing the guilt of the one offering the sin. They, it's part of their job to share the culpability, the guilt of the sinner. In other words, the sinner, so the, sorry, the priest rather, shares in the guilt of the sinner. Now it's the same principle with gossip. You think about it. The moment the information is passed on to you, you share the guilt. How? So when you hear gossip and you don't do anything about it, you are in a way tolerating the sin of the person if the person you're gossiping with are guilty. And so by doing that, by having this information and you keeping it for yourself, you are sharing the guilt. You are tolerating sin indirectly. Because the moment the information passed on to you and you did not act accordingly, you become complicit to the guilt, to the sin. So if you don't want to be complicit, don't listen to gossips. That's very, that's very clear. That's simple. Look at the passage in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the same principle. Leviticus 5, 1 says, If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held, held responsible. If a certain person is charged, brought to court, and you have the information to acquit him, and you did not speak up, you're guilty of withholding the information. Same thing with gossip. Same principle. If you have the information, you don't come forward, and the person is judged, you are also guilty. That means the more we know, the more we are liable to the sins or to the guilt. The more we know, the more liable we become. So in matters of all practicality, if you see a brother or a sister sinning against the Lord, and what we mean is moral sin, not having a tattoo or wearing a bikini in the beach, those are, those are trivial. We're talking about big-time sin, like, like checking in a hotel with someone other than your husband or your wife. And you stay quiet, that means you are complicit, you are liable. That means you have to speak up. You have to confront if possible. See, the principle of Leviticus 5.1 says that we are equally guilty if we simply did not do nothing. Coming up on verse 22, Leviticus chapter 4 says, If the head of the tribe or the ordinary person sins, the blood is sprinkled on the horns of the altar outside the sanctuary. Now, it's hard to imagine this, but if, just imagine there's an altar, a brazen altar, that is with fire. It's 24 hours with fire. And the priest will have to sprinkle blood on the altar, on the horns of the altar. The priest doesn't go inside the sanctuary, but the high priests, but when the high priest sins, the, the, you know, the top guy, when he sins, he will have to go through, through the sanctuary into the most holy place, in front of the veil, sprinkle blood. So that means the higher you go in spirituality and calling, the deeper you go inside the sanctuary. This means there is more culpability for those who were given more responsibility. 
That's why in the same way in the church, the pastor and the leaders of the church have more responsibility and culpability. There's a reason why Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. It's very important that we keep ourselves pure, not share in the guilt and sins of other people. That means we have to be careful who we elevate as elders and deacons of the church, who we allow in front, who we designate in a certain position of leadership in the church. See, there's a sacred trust given to us as a church. We have to be holy because God is holy. You know, the world... with. The world doesn't care. But we have been given a calling, a sacred trust. Why? Because the pattern of Old Testament worship is almost the same as what we do today in how we worship. We enter the same state of holiness. We have to be holy. We have to be designated and called to be holy. We are in spiritually and physically present in the house of God. Now, this thing is, is very hard to understand because you don't see God. In the Old Testament, they don't see God. They just see the tabernacle. They just know that the presence of God lives inside the tabernacle. Same thing today. The Bible says that we are the temple of God. We don't see God. He's invisible. And yet we know that the presence of God lives among us. When we gather for worship, God is here. We're not just enjoying good music in the cinema, sipping our coffee, listening to good music. We know that when we gather for worship, the presence of God is here, just like in the tabernacle, in the temple. See, we follow certain protocol because we are in the presence of God. The Bible is clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. The church, when we collectively gather together, the presence of God is among us. God dwells among his people. And I believe that. I believe that God is here. Now that means, if we understand this correctly, when we gather as a congregation on a Sunday morning, God's presence is among us. That's why the psalmist says, Psalm 22 verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. That means when we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, our praises, our singing, our body postures, our hearts, are laid bare before God. God sees through us. God looks down on us. And he knows what we're doing. And so everything that we do, however we want to do worship or how you do worship, God is pleased or not, depending on how we do it. But the whole idea is that on a Sunday morning, we commune together, we worship God, and God's presence is in this very place. We should treat Sunday morning like communion service. See, the, the problem I think with the church today is that they treat Sunday morning as something ordinary, and then when it's Communion Sunday, it's more special because we are participating, partaking of the Lord's Supper. I think we should do the same thing. Now, what Paul is saying is that when you do communion, you have to examine yourselves. You have to be worthy in a manner that is presentable to God, pleasing to God. In the same way, I think that worship to God must be the same because we are entering the main sanctuary of God. We have to be pleasing to God. Now, Jesus told this parable, which is very interesting. He said two men went to the temple grounds. One is a Pharisee, another is a tax collector. You know this story, right? So the Pharisee is a little boastful. He went to the, to the temple grounds. 
And he said, God, thank you that I'm not like Andres. I'm just making an example. I'm not like this, this other guy, the tax collector right behind me. I fast twice a day. I give my tithes and offering. I'm early to church every Sunday. I'm good. Thank you, God. But this tax collector, tax collector is like a government official. He's most likely corrupt. He's at the back. The Bible said he cannot even lift his head in heaven. He was beating his chest. He knows he's corrupt. He knows he's a sinner. And he was beating his chest. In the, in the ancient world, in New Testament culture, it's like repentance. Beating your chest is a symbol of repentance. He was repenting himself. He was sorry for what he did. He's ashamed. And what he said is that, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. That's the only thing he said. And the Bible said that only one is forgiven. Because only one asked for forgiveness. Only one is worthy of God's forgiveness. You see, when we come to God in a self-righteous attitude, we bring judgment to ourselves. God is not pleased. You see, when we stand before God, we stand before God, we are all sinners turned saints. It doesn't mean we stop making mistakes. It just means that we have consciously and deliberately stopped a sinful lifestyle. We're talking about lifestyle. We're not talking about those occasional mistakes. God knows. God understands. We're talking about continuing our sinful lifestyle. If you are a Christian and you are continuing your sinful lifestyle, that means there's some problem with you. That means if you were once an idol worshiper, you've stopped it. That means if you were once an adulterer and sleeping around, that means you stopped it. That means if you're a drunkard or a thief or an addict, that means you changed your lifestyle, you stopped it. That's the difference. So I suppose that this tax collector, once he prayed to God and asked for forgiveness, he would go back home and change his profession. That's how repentance works. There's a difference between remorse and repentance. You know this. You know, remorse is a deep feeling of guilt and shame. But it's nothing more than a feeling. Repentance is an action word. This is like, remorse is like this. This is like a guy who tells his girlfriend, I love you, I'm so in love with you, I'm head over heels with you, but I don't want to commit. This is not right. That's remorse. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to change my lifestyle. That's remorse. Repentance is different. Repentance is saying, I'm sorry for what I did, and I'm changing my lifestyle. You see, sin offering doesn't work like remorse. Sin offering doesn't work like remorse. Worship doesn't work like remorse. Serious relationship with God doesn't work like that. You see, in Leviticus, when a person sins unintentionally, the house of God is polluted. It's defiled. So the person brings an animal. The blood purifies the sinner, and the sinner is forgiven. The punishment is withheld. I want you to imagine for a second a person who says he's a Christian, who sins unintentionally or otherwise, comes to church but refuses to commit himself with the Lord. What that means is that whenever he does, he does that, he forfeits his rights or his privilege to receive forgiveness. He's like the Pharisee who's saying, I don't have a problem. I'm okay. Thank you, God, for blessing my life. 
I'm not saying for a second that you cannot pray in your own house and where you are in your own, the comfort of your own home. I'm saying that when you come to church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, very specifically, when we gather for worship, it's different. When we come together for worship and we offer that, we ask for forgiveness from our sins, God is pleased. Just like when we offer the sin offering. Here's the thing. You see, when we celebrate your birthday, when you celebrate your birthday and people greet you the following day, it feels different, correct? Correct? It should be belated happy birthday, right? It feels different when people I mean, greet you the second day or the third day or, or that week. It's no longer your birthday. You expect people to come on your birthday because that is your birthday. Happens once a year, Right? Have you ever tried to fly back to your home country on Christmas Eve? Anyone tried that? You flew, you know, 25, December 25, because that's the cheapest ticket or whatever. But you landed 26 the following day. You know, it's not Christmas anymore. It feels different, right? It feels like you missed something big time. See, this is also the idea of worshiping God on a Sunday morning where we are supposed to gather together in worship. You see, Jesus Christ resurrected on Sunday, not Monday, not Tuesday, not Wednesday. He did not resurrect on Sabbath day. He resurrected on Sunday. That is why the early disciples worship on Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. This is the reason why benediction is given on Sunday. It's when we gather for worship, God dwells in this house. That's the whole idea behind this one. Here's the big question. If the sin offering is the protocol for forgiveness of sin, how can Jesus simply forgive without requiring people to bring the sin offering to the temple? You're, you probably read the Gospels, correct? There are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are instances where Jesus just simply approaches a person and forgives. But isn't the protocol you bring an animal to the temple, offer the sacrifice, get the blood, sprinkle it before you are forgiven? But Jesus did not do that. He simply dispensed forgiveness. So how can Jesus simply dispense forgiveness without the ritual? Now, I say that because there was a story in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went to a city north of Galilee in Capernaum. He went to a house. He preached. And when people heard, they came together. They arrived in throngs, and the house was immediately packed shoulder to shoulder. In Ilocano, it's bumper to bumper. Is that correct? Right, right. So it's, it's really packed. The house is small, it's packed, all right? All right, nobody can come in anymore. But there's this group of friends who brought their paralytic friend. They want Jesus to see their friend, but they cannot go through. So they went to the roof, dug a hole from the roof, and lowered the paralytic. Jesus was so impressed. I mean, these guys brought their paralytic friend. Jesus was so impressed, he looked upon the paralytic and he said, Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, go to the temple and offer sin offering. He did not do that. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Full stop. And why not go to the temple, offer a goat? He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, in the time of Jesus Christ, this was controversial. Because as we know, in the Old Testament, sin can only be attained in the temple. Sorry, forgiveness 
can only be attained in the temple through a priest, through a sin offering, a very specific protocol. God can only forgive through the temple because God is there. That's the dwelling place of God. And yet with audacity, Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, period. I mean, that's for me is fascinating. The people and the friends of the paralytic saw that the real problem of the paralytic was the sickness, the physical sickness. But Jesus saw it differently. Jesus looked at him and he saw that the real problem was not the paralysis, but sin. He could have said, you're healed. Or, or touch his body and get up and walk. But Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. You see, but the people in his day understood perfectly. And these are the teachers of the law. These are the ones who has memorized and mastered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the whole Torah. And so they reacted in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming, rightly so. Why? Because who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus presented himself as someone who can forgive sins. I think the question is legitimate. How can Jesus simply forgive sin? If he's not God, then he's definitely blaspheming. It's a sin punishable by death. If he's not God, then who the heck is Jesus Christ? Who is this guy? And the people are so confused. How can Jesus simply forgive? There was another time when Jesus was having dinner with a certain Pharisee. He was in a house having dinner. Suddenly, a woman came. This woman has a very bad reputation in the community. But she brought herself an alabaster jar of perfume. This is a very expensive perfume. This is more, probably more expensive as the Baccarat Rouge 540. I don't know if you know that. Or the Tom Ford's Top of the Line, which sells about $500 per bottle. I mean, this is expensive. So this woman brought her alabaster jar, and because she has a reputation, she went to Jesus Christ. Everyone knows her. She began, begins to weep. And the tears fall from her eyes onto the feet of Jesus Christ. And then she began to pour perfume on the feet of Jesus Christ and wiped the feet of Jesus Christ with her hair and started kissing the feet of Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus said? Luke chapter 7, 48. Jesus said to her, Get away from me, woman. No, he did, he did not say that. He said, your sins are forgiven. Why? Verse 49 says, the other guests began to say among themselves, another controversy. Who is this who even forgives sins? I mean, they know Jesus can heal people. They know Jesus can work miracles. They know Jesus probably can walk on waters. They know Jesus can do something but not forgive sins, this is the domain of God. Only God can forgive, and yet Jesus did that. And when Jesus was looking at the woman, he knows this woman. Jesus knew why she was weeping at, her, at his feet. She carried so much sin, so much guilt. She's stuck in the cycle of depravity, and she cannot get out. That's why she's weeping. So much so that the community made her an outcast. That means... This woman has no access to the temple, no access to the priest, no access to forgiveness. She cannot even go to the temple to ask forgiveness. 
That means for a long time, this woman has not experienced any grace, has not felt any God's love for a while, has not any received any assurance of forgiveness. And here is Jesus, without requiring her to offer a blood offering, to go to Jerusalem in the temple, simply said, your sins are forgiven. And the people around him started to ask, how can Jesus forgive sins? Who is this guy? Now, the answer to that is buried deep in Leviticus chapter 4. The high priest in Leviticus chapter 4 is the only one who is authorized to go in the innermost chamber of the sanctuary during Yom Kippur, once a year. But the problem is that if he himself, who is also human and imperfect, if he himself sins, there's a big problem. Who will go? Who will go to the sanctuary? So what he must do is he must kill a bull, the biggest of the animal. He must kill a male bull and take the blood, go inside the sanctuary in front of the veil and sprinkle blood seven times. And he will be forgiven. The question is, what happens to the rest of the bull? Let me read to you verse 11, chapter 4. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh, as well as the head and legs the internal organs and the intestines, that is the rest of the bull, he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. Now the phrase, he must take outside the camp, is crucial to understand why Jesus can forgive sins without the sin offering. The book of Hebrews explains it to us. So there's another book in the New Testament that explains Leviticus. That's the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 13, verse 11. It says, The high priest carries the blood of animals in the most holy place as a sin offering. We know that already. Leviticus 4. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. We just read that. And so Jesus, he's making a comparison now, and so Jesus also suffered outside the gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go outside the camp Bearing this grace, he bore. You see, in Leviticus 4, the bull is taken outside of the camp. It is burned there because it carries the sin of the high priest and the people. But Jesus did not offer the bull. Jesus offered his own blood. He was taken outside of the city of Jerusalem, all the way to Calvary, to bear the disgrace of sin. Jesus became the ultimate and final sin offering. Is that beautiful? So we, we could probably be thinking, sin offering, it doesn't apply to me. It's not relevant to me. Oh, yes, it is. Because Jesus was the one who offered the final sin offering. He offered himself, his own body. There's a reason why he can forgive sins. Now, here's the question again. If his death is the basis of forgiveness, how can Jesus forgive people even before he died on the cross? I mean, before the cross, he's been forgiving people. What's the basis of that? You see, priests, again, are intermediaries. We are mediators. They are required to eat the sin offering. And in doing so, they incorporate, they share the guilt of the people. Their job is to bear the sins or the, the guilt of the people. Jesus is a sort of a priest. And so that means every time Jesus forgives sins, he accumulates the sin of the person. He's the priest, remember. 
So whenever people sin, they come to Jesus, Jesus forgives, Jesus accumulates the sin on himself, on his body. He absorbs that sin. And on Good Friday, he took the role of the high priest. He entered the heavenly sanctuary and he offered himself as the ultimate offering. And he did that because the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That means, beginning from the Old Testament, since people began, started offering bulls and goats, sins were forgiven because Jesus Christ will come. Sins were not totally forgiven then. The only time that it was totally forgiven was when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Let's, let me explain this to you. This is like a check. So when you write a check, that's not the real money, correct? It's, it's a, a form of guarantee that you will have payment, checks. So in the Old Testament, the bulls and the goats are like checks. God has been giving away checks. When Jesus dispenses forgiveness before this death on the cross, he was dispensing checks. They are guarantees that God will forgive. Those checks will not bounce. The promise of God for forgiveness is true. Because God knows that in due time, Jesus will offer the final sacrifice. He will fund that checks. Beloved, the devil will make you doubt. The devil will put ideas in your head that you're not good enough. That when you, even when you ask for forgiveness, but when you keep on falling, the devil will say, you're not good enough. God has not forgiven you, really. Now, I'm telling you, no one deserves forgiveness. If you're saying, I don't deserve it, nobody deserves it. No one of us deserves forgiveness. That's because forgiveness is grace. Grace is undeserved. Just like the two men praying in the temple, the other one is saying, I don't need it. But the other guy, the tax collector, said, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. We don't deserve it. You see, God requires repentance, not remorse. You don't have to bring an animal sacrifice. All you have to do is to come on your knees, admit your sinner, accept the grace of the cross, and say yes to Jesus. See, the sin offering points to Jesus Christ. And the sin offering reminds us that the death of Jesus Christ is a sure basis of God's forgiveness for you and for me. That is so sure. And you know what he's doing right now? What about me sinning tomorrow? What about me sinning the day after or next week or next year? What's going to happen to that? Will that be also forgiven? You know what Jesus is doing right now? The Bible said that he's in the sanctuary of God. That's why he's not here. He's the high priest mediating for us with God. And every time we sin, today, tomorrow, the following day, next week, God is saying to the Father, he's mine. I got him covered. I died for him. I forgive him. He's mine. You see, this invitation is for everyone who is overwhelmed by guilt, by sin, by shame. Nobody of us are perfect. We all need grace. And the good news is that this invitation is open for all. It's for everyone. See, God knows who you are. God knows your real condition. God knows what's going through in your life right now. Some things other people don't see, but Jesus does. 
And Jesus already offered the sin offering. And all you have to do is to come to him, come to the altar, and say yes to Jesus. I want to pray for you. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this lavish gift of your blood on the cross poured out for us. You bore the disgrace that we ought to have. The shame that we have was passed on to you so that we can be forgiven. Even though we are unworthy, Father, thank you for giving us this grace. I pray for anyone here who feel a deep sense of regret, who has repentance in their mind, who wants to change and to please you. Father, I pray that you will grant and dispense forgiveness today. For those of us who also make mistakes, and we say we're not perfect, we say we're still fighting against this flesh, I pray, Father, you will give us strength. I pray the Holy Spirit will give us the inspiration to follow you, to walk humbly before you, to walk in righteousness. Father, allow us to come to your altar so that we can accept grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.